Well, good evening. Welcome to our Bible study tonight. It's good to see everybody. We're still in 1 Peter. This is our 17th session in 1 Peter. It's taking us longer to study it than it did Peter to write it. So, but anyway, it's good to study God's Word in depth and go into it word by word in word studies and see exactly what God has for us there. So we're glad that you're here to join us. We have tonight, we have one more week. Uh, we have the final greetings and the conclusion. I was going to add it into tonight, but there's so much even in the greetings that, that he said there that's, that's important. So we're going we're gonna to wait and, and uh, have one more session next Wednesday night, and that will wrap it up then as we look at verses 12 to 14 next week. Tonight is chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. So let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started in our study time together. Father, thank you tonight for your, your people here at First Baptist Church. And Father, for how they have a love for your word and how we can open up your word in the middle of the week, study it together, and see what you said in the past so that we know how it relates to us here in the future. God, we know that your word is eternal. It's always true, will always be true. And I pray that you would teach us from it tonight. Thank you for those who are here. Thank you for those who have joined us online. Pray your blessings upon them as well. And may the Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 tonight. By way of reminder, Peter was writing to Gentile believers in northern Asia Minor, which is Turkey, on the Black Sea around 63 A.D., Persecution had been subtle up to this point, mainly in the way of discrimination, mainly in the way of not understanding the Christian faith. But now, within a year of the time he's writing this, 64, October of 64, is when Nero, the Roman emperor, begins to get desperate, and he begins to persecute Christians in mass. Things are not going well in the Roman Empire. Uh, Nero's the emperor. The natives are getting restless. And he really needs a good distraction. He he needs to be the hero. He needs something to unify the empire that will make him look good. So as a result, he decided, 64 AD, in the month of October, to burn the city, uh, set Rome ablaze. Most of the city, more than 50% of it, was completely destroyed some say up to 70% completely destroyed, and he blamed it on this new religious group, which he hated, known as Christians. So, as a result, he said they didn't worship the gods, and the gods got angry, and they set the city ablaze, and so he was punishing Christians for being responsible for the city burning. Uh, A lot of theologians say, or other historians of that time frame, say it was actually uh, Nero who set the fire himself. But after the fire, persecution of Christians began in earnest, beatings, imprisonment, killing Christians, beheading Christians. They would be set ablaze, set on fire. Uh, They would be wrapped in animal skins, fed to wild beasts as sport in arenas. And so Christians really faced the brunt of the fire in Rome in 64 AD. So, within a year of what Peter is saying tonight, the persecution began in earnest. So, he's talking about persecution again tonight and trying as best he could to prepare the the believers for the horror that awaits them in about 10 months. So, beginning with chapter 4, for the remainder of the letter, Peter talks about suffering, talks about persecution, and uh, what type of spirit you should have in the midst of it all. 
So, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, since Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same mindset when you suffer. Chapter 4, verse 7, he said, the end of all things is near. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, do not be surprised when fiery trials overtake you as, as if something strange is happening. Know that it's normal. And then last week, chapter 5, verse 1, he told the church leaders, during persecution, you do your job. You lead out well and you be faithful to all that God has called you to do as leaders of the church. So that's where we ended last week, and tonight we pick up with chapter 5, verse 6, with him continuing to tell them, here are some things you need to know as persecution is just about to be right around the corner for all of us. So first of all, read verse 6 with me. Letter A on your outline, humble yourselves. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now let's stop there and, and look at that verse. Again, he comes back to the theme of humility. You remember last week, he told them, as you suffer, be humble. Take on a spirit of humility. And he said last week, remember that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, uh, you need to humble yourself. Well, again tonight, he continues with that theme and says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, it appears Peter is saying, God's hand is upon you even in the suffering. Now, we have a tendency to think when bad things happen to us, God's hand's removed from us. And we want his hand over us to protect us. It's kind of how we think, right? If, if something bad happens, if I suffer in any way, then God's hand has been removed. Peter says that in the midst of your suffering, that his hand is upon you in the midst of it. So, Peter saw God more like a skilled surgeon who is shaping his people into who he wants them to be. In the Old Testament, the hand of God was symbolic. It was symbolic of discipline, but it was also symbolic of deliverance. We are told in Exodus 3, 19, Exodus 6, 1, that God's hand was a disciplining hand. But we're also told, Deuteronomy 9 and Ezekiel 20, God's hand was a delivering hand. It was both discipline and deliverance. And now he's saying, humble yourselves in this suffering under God's mighty hand. Because, the last phrase, verse 6, he will at the proper time exalt you. He will lift you up. Just as the suffering has beat you down, when the time comes, God's going to lift you up. When is that time? Is it heaven or is it here? It's a good question. We don't know. We do know believers will be exalted in heaven. We know that, especially martyrs for the faith. But he could be talking about here at the proper time, when God says it's time, he will exalt you out of the suffering. Tonight, some of you may be suffering. You may be going through things in your life that are difficult. 
you may consider yourself to be suffering. If that's the case, know tonight if you humble yourself before God in His mighty hand, at the right time, God's going to lift that suffering and He's going to exalt you. Now, when's the proper time? When is the right time? Well, that's a hard phrase because God knows it, but we don't. The proper time to us is always right now. Lord, I want out of this right now. I want to end my suffering now. But the right time to God may be a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. Who knows? We know from the persecution of Nero that followed, it wasn't short. It took a while. But Peter promised them, God will exalt you if you humble yourself at the right time. Now look at verse 7, letter B on your outline, cast all your care upon him. This might be a verse that many of you have memorized through the years, but verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you memorize that, I memorized that years ago, whenever I first went in, first rededicated my life to the Lord at the age of 19, I I started going through discipleship classes, and one of them was scripture memory, and I think the second verse I memorized was this verse. And I did not know at the time the context was suffering. I was just thinking, well, every time I'm worried or anxious, I just cast my cares on the Lord, which is true. But the context is suffering. So he says this verse does not appear to introduce a new command but explains how to humble yourself from the last verse by entrusting yourself and your troubles to the Lord. It is true humility to cast your cares upon God. It is proud presumption to take your worries as your own and be anxious about all those things in your life that God's already promised to take care of. By the way, Matthew 6, 31 to 35, God's already promised to take care of you, promised to meet your needs, promised to take care of you. Said he, if he takes care of the lilies of the field, he's going to take care of you. If he takes care of the sparrows, he'll take care of you. That's, he's already promised that. So whenever you proudly presume to worry about things because you think you need to worry about them because God doesn't have it, that's pride. That's what Peter says. So humility is taking those worries and those cares that you have and casting them on the Lord. This generation that we live in right now is one of anxiety. In fact, the, uh, the, the modern generation is called the most anxious generation in human history. I mean American history. The most anxious generation in American history. Anxiety is at an all-time high. There's medication, there's everything for anxiety that that Americans are just overwhelmingly being part of and here Peter tells us whenever you're going through trials and suffering you cast that anxiety on the Lord and he tells us here Psalm 55 22 says the same thing cast your burdens upon the Lord and he'll sustain you now, I want you to think about the first word of verse 7. Cast. 
Cast your worries, your anxieties on the Lord. Casting is an energetic word. It's, casting is, it shows action. He didn't say, lay your worries on the Lord very passively. He says, cast your cares on the Lord. Peter's a fisherman, right? He knows what a cast is. You take the net and you rear back. We've seen them do it in Israel. And you, and you throw it far away from you and there's energy involved. It's a strong energetic word. It's not just, oh, I'm going to lay my cares on the Lord. No, no, you cast your cares on the Lord. It is the picture of actively throwing a distance away from you. Casting a net. Those anxieties, those worries, don't just say, okay, I'll give them to you, Lord. You cast them upon Him. The word anxieties is interesting. It's the word mermina in Greek. It means to be worried or to be anxious. But it also literally means to be distracted. Mary and Martha, if you remember Luke chapter 10, they, they, Jesus, they hosted Jesus for a meal. And if you remember, Martha was busy about getting the meal ready and Mary's at his feet just worshiping. And Martha gets mad at Mary because she's not helping her in the kitchen to get this wonderful meal out to Jesus. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are so distracted by so many things. It's the exact word Mermina. You're anxious, you're worried. Let her have the better thing. And worries distract us, don't they? Anxieties are distracting. Because when you're worried about something, it's hard to focus on anything else. Because you're worried. If you cast those distractions upon the Lord, then you can see clearly to do other things. Listen to what Spurgeon said about this passage, verse 7. Spurgeon was preaching on this passage one Sunday, and he gave the following illustration. He said, let's imagine that somebody comes into your house, a man comes into your house to move your furniture for you. But as he walks in, you notice that he is carrying this huge backpack very heavy backpack, and he's kind of stumbling underneath the weight of the backpack as he walks in. And then he tries to move your furniture, but he can't because his own backpack is so heavy. Would you not suggest that he would find it easier, Spurgeon said, if he laid his own burden aside so he could carry yours? And then Spurgeon said, in the same way, we cannot do God's work when we're weighed down by our own burdens. Cast them upon Him and take up the Lord's burden, which is light and easy to bear. It's a good illustration because so many times we try to go through life helping other people or doing the Lord's work, and we're so bound with our own worries and cares. Cast those on the Lord. But notice the last phrase of verse 7. <clears throat> because he cares for you. Now that phrase was revolutionary. Why was it revolutionary? Because in these days, 
the, in the ancient Greek culture, the religions of the day could imagine a God being good, but not caring. And so many of the ancient religions taught God is benevolent, but He doesn't care who you are or what you're doing or what you're going through. And so it was revolutionary for a God to actually care about a subject. In their minds, he's God, he's, re he's remote, he can do what he wants, and yes, he can even be benevolent, but he'll never be caring. And so Peter adds in there, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Christianity was unique in that it portrays a God who actually cares for his children. It was unheard of then. And if they're about to go through third persecution, they may wonder, does God really care? And so Peter gave them the answer 10 months before the persecution hit. Yes, he does. Sometimes you go through things and I go through things and we're wondering, does God even know about this? Does he even really care what I'm going through? Does he care how tough it is? Does he care all of these things? Absolutely he does. Because we wonder the same things. And they would have a tendency to wonder in persecution, does God really care? But Peter says, yes, he does. So cast your cares upon him. Then go to verse 8, letter C on your outline. Be watchful of attacks by the adversary. Verse 8 may be one you all have memorized also. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let's talk about this verse for a moment because it gives us some interesting pictures. Trusting God and casting all your cares upon him is not all that you need, according to Peter. Something else you need to do. So he gives us what are called in the Greek language, two incisive aorist imperatives. Well, all that means is an imperative is a command. An incisive aorist, aorist means an idea that's clearly expressed showing importance. So it would be akin, an incisive aorist would be akin to somebody telling you, now listen to me, I'm about to tell you something very important. If they're that firm with it, that's an incisive aorist in Greek. He has two of them. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Let's talk about both of those. Your adversary here that's mentioned, uh, be sober and be watchful, your adversary is your opponent. It's the word that's used um, to describe a courtroom setting and somebody brings a lawsuit against you and you're defending yourself. The one who brought the lawsuit is, is the adversary. And that's the Greek word that's used. It's a, it's a legal term that they would know from the courts. So he describes Satan as your prosecuting attorney. He is the one that's going to bring the accusations against you. He is your adversary. Now, there are some theologians that believe there is a veiled reference in verse 8 to Nero. That he's really not talking about the devil here as much as he's talking about the emperor Nero, 
who in just a few short months is going to be bringing all kind of accusations against them and bringing suffering. And so what he's saying here is, but I think it's a reference to to the devil himself because the wording that's used, we must practice self-control and keep alert because Satan is on the prowl. The word sober-minded there is the word to be clear-headed, calm, and collected. So whenever Satan approaches you with temptations, be clear-headed. Why? Because there are a lot of things that can cloud your judgment when you're tempted. So be clear-headed, be calm and collected. But the second word is be watchful. It's a word in Greek, gregario. It, It means give strict attention or pay close attention it's my name. Greg is the word in Greek, Gregorio, which means watchful one. That's what my name means. My na- mom probably named me that because she knew I wouldn't pay attention as a boy. Pay attention is what it literally means. Watch. Stay wide awake. Peter knew what it was like not to watch, didn't he? Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? And Jesus said, stay here and watch and pray with me. And he removed himself a little bit and prayed and, and in agony with the drops of blood fell to the ground and went back and Peter's asleep. And he fell asleep three times. Peter knew what it was like to not watch, to fall asleep. And so now he tells these believers it, with an incisive arrest, you watch. I didn't. You watch. Because that devil is out there, all he was looking for me, and he is looking for you. Now, our culture often makes fun of believers, Christians, because we believe in a devil. And they all just laughed. Us, a lot of them, not all of them, but, but most of our culture does not believe in a personal devil. Most believe in a God, they say. But most less than 50% believe that there's a personal devil out there who will try to attack you personally. They just kind of scoff at that. <laughs> yeah, it's, oh, those Christians send the boogeyman out there. But one of Satan's tactics is to try to convince you he does not exist. So be wary of what he does. He's prowling, according to Peter, prowling. He's not been bound yet. Now, he's going to be bound. Revelation 20, we saw that when we studied Revelation Verses 1 and 2, he's bound and chained, and he'll not have any more activity. But right now, he's unbound, and he is active and walking and prowling and on the move in the world today. Now, I heard a preacher say a while back, quote, Satan is everywhere and can access anyone. He knows your thoughts and your feelings and everything about you, so be wary. Hold, hold on a second. He's not omniscient like God. He's a created being. Created beings aren't omniscient. God is omniscient. That means all-knowing. And he's not omnipresent like God. Only God's omnipresent. He can be every place at one time. Satan's a created being. He's not omnipresent. So the devil can't be every place at once. He can have demons or workers that are. He can use people that are. But he can't be every place at one time, and he doesn't know every single thought you have. But 
Peter says he is powerful. Where he is and how he works and when he works and moves, he's powerful. So believers, you must be sober-minded and you must watch. Now, it's interesting to me some of the images that the Bible uses to describe the devil. Uh, He's described in Psalm 91 as a fowler. What's a fowler? One that catches birds. So when you catch a bird, the fowler sneaks up on them, comes unsuspecting. Okay, that's how he works. 2 Corinthians 11, 14 describes him as an angel of light. Appearing to be good and appearing to be glorious and appearing to be attractive and appearing to be something good for you. But it's not. So he's deceptive as well. So the Bible describes him as someone who comes at you unsuspecting and someone that offers you something that looks good that it's not. It's from him. But he also here described as a lion. As a roaring lion. Now, he can roar, but according to Colossians 2.15, he's been defanged. At the cross, Jesus took his sting and power away. But he can sure roar. And he can make us as believers do things we shouldn't do. So be watchful. And be vigilant, sober-minded, Maybe Peter's readers were in danger of Satan getting the upper hand if they regarded their suffering as God not caring. Maybe. And maybe that's why he put it in the context of, of suffering. But sir, Satan is not only a serpent, according to 2 Corinthians 11.3, he's also a lion. And his goal, according to Peter, is to devour Not to make you miserable, but devour you. Not just try to influence you badly. He wants to see you fall. He wants to see you destroyed. His goal is to devour. Now that word is interesting because the word devour there is, uh, whenever I think of somebody devouring something, I think of somebody eating. It's actually a word for drinking. It's a word to drink something down is what it literally means. To drink something down, Dr. David says, in one gulp. The beast, a picture of a beast swallowing up its prey in one gulp. It's his goal, to devour. Now, because it's a word to drinking, some scholars think maybe this is a reference to Nero and the, and the drinking down the blood of the Christian martyrs that's about to happen. Because a reference to the bloody death which believers will be facing in just a few short months. So some people see the devour word as one that is is a, a reference to Nero and the persecution that's coming. But we know Satan's desire is not just to make you ineffective. It's to consume you. Spurgeon again says about this verse, quote, Satan isn't looking just to lick you or nibble you as his prey. He wants to devour you. He can never be content, Spurgeon said, till he sees the believer utterly destroyed. He would like to rend you in pieces, breaking bones, and utterly destroying you if he could. 
Do not, therefore, indulge in the thought that Satan's main goal is to make you miserable. No, no. He wants to devour you. So, interesting image that Peter gives us of the devil and what his desire is for each one of us. Now look at letter D on your outline, resisting the enemy, verse 9. Resist him, talking about Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now let's talk about this just for a moment, um, about how we are to approach Satan. Peter tells us in verse 9, resist him. He does not say, rebuke him. Now, I know Christians all over, the, all, all over everywhere rebuking the devil. We're never commanded to rebuke the devil. We're commanded to resist the devil. It's a command. It doesn't say rebuke him. It says resist him. We are to forsake the world. We are to deny the flesh. But we're to resist the devil. Not rebuke. Resist. Resist his lies. Resist his threats. Resist his intimidation of you. Resist those things. Now, we are told in the Bible to flee from lusts and flee from evil. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Timothy 6 and 2 Timothy 2. We're told to, to run. But I find it interesting. We're not told to run away from the devil. We're told to resist him. Flee, flee evil and flee lusts. But when it comes to the devil, resist him. Now, the word resist is interesting. Antihistamy in, in Greek, it means to defend yourself against someone who's attacking you. So the word literally means to stand against. If you can picture get you bracing your, maybe your back leg and your front leg and, and you're steady and you're resisting opposition come against you, that's the picture of what we're supposed to do to the devil, not turn and run. Stand up to him. Resist him. It's a picture not of cowering and running away. It's a picture of somebody who's superior standing up because in Jesus, you are superior. Stand up against him. Again, some scholars see this as a reference to Nero, standing up and not, not denying your faith when the persecution comes. And it could have that application as well. But it's standing up against the enemy. Satan's primary means of attack, he doesn't, he's not real creative, he doesn't change it a lot because it's worked for all the years. But his number one way of attacking, do you know what it is? It's trying to get you to doubt what God has said. That's it. It's his main MO. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, that's how he approached Eve. Oh, isn't that tree beautiful over there? Yeah, we can't eat of it. Why can't you eat of it? Well, God said that we can't. Well, did God really say that? And he starts to place doubt in her mind whether God really said it. And in our culture, God is placing doubt in all of our minds whether this is really what God said or not. He's still at it. That's his, that's his primary way of attack. Trying to get you to doubt or deny 
or disregard or disobey what God has said. So when he comes against you, resist him and he'll flee from you. But notice he says next, resist him firm in your faith, not in yourself, but in your faith. Those who are not firm in their faith have a more difficult time resisting the devil. They're weaker because they're not firm in their faith. So tonight, you've got to be strong in your faith to resist the devil. How are you strong in your faith? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Whenever you humble yourself, bow before God, you're ready to stand before Satan because you've already bowed before God. And then he adds, knowing that the same sufferings you're about to experience are experienced all over the world by brothers and sisters in Christ. Suffering is a common experience we all have. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter if you're on the other side of the world. Doesn't matter if you're in Garland, Texas. Suffering is something we all have in common around the world. And something we all have in common with Jesus. He was a man of suffering and a man of sorrows. We are not alone in the struggle against the enemy. Peter knew the futility of trying to defeat Satan in your own strength because he tried it and he failed. So after that massive failure at the cross, now he writes, you resist that enemy when he comes, but you be firm in your faith and he'll not be able to stand against you. And then finally, uh, rather uh, two more verses, then we'll close. Letter E on your outline. After the suffering ends, look at verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So Peter's saying, okay, suffering really hasn't started yet. Whenever it starts, you're going to have to endure it. But whenever you do endure it, at the very end of it, after you suffered it a little while, God is going to welcome you to his eternal glory in Christ. And then Peter piles up a number of closely related terms to reinforce the good that God is going to do to his children after they've suffered. Notice there are four of them. After that, notice in verse 10, he will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. Now, all four of those sounds like synonyms, don't they? They are. They're all pretty much related, all the same thing. But notice the little differences. The word restore, where it says in verse 10 that he will restore you, that was a fishing term. Peter's fisherman. It, it was the word ketartizo. Fishermen, it meant to mend your nets. Net breaks, you mend it, so the catch is better next time. It was a fishing term. So Peter the fisherman says, Jesus himself, after you suffered, will mend your net to be useful again. Those places that have broken, he's going to restore. And he's going to mend you. And the word confirm is used next. It's the word to make stable or to set fast. And then the word strengthen, it means to make strong in the soul. And then the word establish is used forth. Themaleo, it literally means to lay the foundation again. So here was Peter's picture. You're about to endure suffering. 
Whenever you come through it, God is going to mend your net again, restore you again, set you fast again where you're stable, your soul will be strong, and He's going to lay a strong, firm foundation for you. He's, you're going to bounce back stronger than ever. And those that survived did, and those that didn't experience this glory. And then we go to verse 11, to His final benediction Dominion belongs to Jesus alone. Look what he says. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has enough power and enough ability to help us while we're suffering to resist the enemy, the devil, and overcome. And the benediction that he closes here with, verse 11, shows this fact. All of these verbs in verse 11 relate to God's might and strength. Now think about that. Place yourself on the Black Sea, 63 AD. You're being persecuted a little, but it's about to hit in full force. And whenever it does, you're going to be thinking right around the corner that Roman government and Nero, they look so mighty and so powerful that you remember they're not. God is the one who has all dominion forever and ever. Amen. So a good reminder when you're in the face of suffering, it's not your circumstances, it's not a Roman emperor who has total control. God is the one who's greater than all, mightier than all, and has all power and might to sustain you. And that's a good word for us all. We'll close there tonight, uh, tomorrow night, well, uh, next Wednesday night, we'll pick up with uh, verse, uh, verse 12 through 14. There are some names he mentions there in the final greeting that are really interesting. Some things he said I wanted to spend a little more time on, so we'll talk about that next Wednesday night. Let's pray together and we'll dismiss. Father, I want to thank you tonight for your word and thank you, Father, for how powerful it is and God, every one of us suffers in our own way, and Lord, right now we're not experiencing physical persecution where we live. We know that many are around the world, and pray that you sustain them tonight with your grace. But Father, I also realize there are those, maybe even here tonight, or maybe listening online tonight, that they're suffering in their own ways. God, I just pray tonight that they would experience your power and your grace and your sustaining ability in the midst of all that they're going through. It may be job-related, it may be finances, it may be relationships. But whatever, Lord, is coming against them, I pray that you would show yourself to be strong. And then, Father, I pray tonight that our great enemy, the, the devil, will be defeated by us, that we will stand against him, we'll resist him in the faith, firm in the faith, because of who we are in Christ. So God, whenever he tempts us to deny your word and doubt your word and disregard your word or maybe even disobey your word, I pray that we would resist him knowing where it's coming from. Whether he comes to us as an angel of light, whether he comes to us crafty as a serpent, whether he comes to us as a prowling lion, God, give us the grace and the strength firm in our faith to resist him and win the victory over him. 
And Father, we pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.